In the end, it's our ideals, our values that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to episode 23, Resurgence. A fleet of 80 triremes cuts through the North Aegean. Each one of these ships are Athenian, every single one weighing more than a semi-truck. Every ship has at least 170 rowers on it. Stacked up in three layers, the bottom two layers of rowers can barely even see outside the ship. It's only the top layer of rowers that can actually see their oars going into the water. This top layer of rowers receives a bonus on top of their normal pay for this responsibility. They're the ones that guide the oars into the water. The next two people beside them can't even see where the oars are going. They can barely see outside of the ship. But all of these rowers, be it 170, 180, all of these rowers have a single purpose. To get this ship going as fast as possible before it drives into the enemy. You see, on the front of these triremes is a bronze ram. This thing weighs a thousand pounds. That's 450 kilograms. This bronze ram is cast in a single pour. It has fins along the side so that when it rams into an enemy ship, it can be pulled out again to repeat the maneuver over and over and over again. This fleet of ships, these triremes with their rowers, their skilled rowers and these bronze rams, their steersmen that are some of the best in the Greek world. This is the last hope of Athens. For 20 years now, Athens has been at war. There has been plague, there has been devastating loss after devastating loss, internal political coups and external military disasters, and between all these things they have been brought to their knees but somehow they are still throwing punches. They're at war with Sparta and they have no intention of giving up. Between the massive losses in the Sicilian expedition and then the fallout that occurred in the oligarchical coup that we covered last episode, the Empire of Athens isn't crumbling, but it is certainly frayed at the edges. A lot of the city-states that rebelled in the last episode and the episode before that were able to get away. Huge places. Cities like Miletus, one of the most important cities in Asia Minor, is gone. They have no interest in Athens. Euboea, the enormous island just to the north of Athens, one of the few local places where Athens can actually get food and uses it for pasture land for their cattle, has rebelled. In fact, they even built a causeway from their own island to the mainland. That way they're not so vulnerable to the Athenian navy and they can walk over to mainland Greece whenever they want. Now even with all these disasters, Athens is still in the war and not only that, but they have also hung on to their democracy. Despite the oligarchical coup that occurred in the previous episode and in the wake of this restoration, the assembly at Athens decided that a couple changes were needed to ensure that something like this can never happen again couple examples. First off, the seats in the council, that's the council of 500 that acts as the steering committee for the general assembly in Athens that has to pass everything. 
This council, the seats in this council, the physical seats where you'd actually sit down, were assigned by lot. This would prevent one faction from all sitting together so they could cooperate and shout down speakers they didn't like, that kind of thing. Something else they did is they passed laws that anybody moving against the democracy to try to undermine the democracy in Athens would be declared a public enemy, their property confiscated, and they can be killed with impunity. The law was inscribed on the stone near the entrance to this council. Now, even though they brought their democracy back, they were fairly lenient with the 400. The 400 that ruled Athens as an oligarchy for a brief stint of time, they weren't banned from the city, except for a couple of the worst. I mean, our friend Pisander, for instance, he ran out of Athens. He's no longer here. But the 400 generally were allowed to remain in Athens and continue to live as citizens. Some of these men were even generals later. They regained their reputation, and they continued to serve in Athens. Pay for a lot of the public offices in Athens was restored, so if you were one of the poorest people in the city, and you couldn't even afford to take a day off of work to come in and you know, do voting or serve on a jury or whatever the case may be, now that pay was restored, so you didn't have to worry about taking that day off of work. They brought the democracy back, and that in short, they passed rules to make sure that it would be far more difficult to do something like this again. Now, as we mentioned in the previous episode, when this coup fell, and if you don't remember this, don't worry about it. It's going to happen in the background of this episode. It's not really a big deal. But if you remember, when the 400 fell out of power, the people voted to bring the 5,000 back into power. But in the background of this episode, that 5,000 is transitioning back into a full democracy at Athens. We're not going to get into it because, for one, there's not a lot of good information. We don't know exactly how the transformation looked. But just know that in the background, the democracy is being fully restored slowly in time. Even though Athens was able to hang on to its democracy, there were still plenty of problems. Not only was the empire fraying at the edges with the rebellions that were going on, but they were broke. There was a serious lack of money in Athens. It actually got so bad that a lot of the expeditions that we're going to discuss during this episode, when they would elect generals right now, instead of saying, congratulations, Bill, you're now the general for Athens. We want you to go take over X city. Here's your ships. Here's your pay. Go take care of it. Instead, they would elect Bill or whoever as general, and sometimes they wouldn't be able to give him a dime. They would just expect him to go out and find financing for his mission while he's out in the field be it through conquest or maybe shaking down merchants that happened to pass his fleet, piracy was becoming a little more common in the Athenian navy simply to sustain this war. Athens was broke. Some of the generals would even take their rowers on their triremes, these 170 trained combatants, and if they weren't rowing and it was harvest time, well, they might go nearby and pick some fruit and get paid for their efforts to try to bring more money into the fleet. So between all of these things, Athens is worn down. Granted, this has been the trend for the past several episodes, but it has gotten to the point where they are on their last legs. These are the last ships that they have, and they are at the point where one good blow would knock them out of the war. One good shot could end everything for Athens right now, and the Peloponnesian War could be over. Fortunately for Athens, Sparta is rather slow to act. Even after all the disasters that we've been covering, the Sicilian expedition, the coup in the previous episode, the failure at Euboea, Sparta fails to attack Athens in a meaningful way. In fact, Thucydides calls them probably the most convenient enemy that Athens could possibly have, because they are so slow when it comes to counterattacking. 
and generally just don't take the initiative when compared to Athens, who's very daring and bold. However, many things are looking up for Sparta. Obviously, Athens isn't doing well at all, and so that's good by itself. But things between Sparta and Persia have improved drastically. Now, we mentioned in the last episode how Persia is funding a lot of these Spartan missions. They're paying the rowers, but just enough to keep them attached and trying to wear them down. It's not a good relationship. Sparta eventually gets sick of being strung along like this, and so they head north and go to another one of the satraps in the area. Still Persian, still one of the governors is a good way to think of them for Persia, but this other man, this other satrap for Persia, has a totally different attitude on how to approach this war. He's more willing to actually pay Sparta for their work. He wants to take a direct hand himself in this war to make sure that everything goes well. Now, this man is going to be a major player in the next couple episodes, and so his name is Pharnabas. Because, you know, these ancient Greek names aren't hard enough. Let's throw a Persian one in there just to mix it up. But not only is the relationship between Sparta and Persia improving, there's also an official peace treaty that Sparta and Persia have now. That's right. This isn't just a fly-by-night arrangement. This is an official documentation of Sparta and Persia working together, and it's a real treaty. It includes things like not only having a peace between Persia and Sparta, so they won't fight each other, but it also includes the Persian pay for Spartan rowers and providing additional loans if necessary if more money is needed for the war. But on top of all of this, neither side can make a peace by themselves. That means, according to this treaty that the Spartans signed with Persia, Sparta can no longer exit and end the Peloponnesian War by having a peace with Athens unless Persia agrees to this. Sparta has welded itself to Persia, but in doing so they have gained the king's purse and Pharnabas, a man who is very interested in winning this war. Now then, if that is the way that the board is set, Let's see how the pieces are moving. That Athenian fleet that we discussed in the beginning of the episode, it's moving north, and it's moving north with a very particular purpose in mind. You see, the Spartan fleet, which is led by a man named Menderis and is 86 ships strong, is sitting in the weak underbelly of the Athenian Empire. It is sitting in the Hellespont. Remember, what is the classic weak spot of Athens that we have mentioned several times? The food. They cannot feed themselves. Athens is so populated that they can't grow enough food to sustain themselves. And so they have to import it, and most of it comes from the area around the Black Sea, modern-day Ukraine, which has to pass through a tiny choke point to get to Athens. The Bosphorus, the Dardanelles are their modern name, but back then it was known as the Hellespont. This is the area right around Gallipoli and Istanbul. If you look it up on a map, this area is tiny. This little stretch of water that connects the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea is as narrow as about a mile, or 1.7 around that kilometers in some places. It's very narrow. This is where the Spartan fleet is sitting. In other words, if you have a fleet here and you're controlling the Hellespont, you are effectively putting all of Athens under siege. So this fleet that Mindarus is controlling, the Spartan fleet of 86 ships that is sitting in the underbelly of Athens, has to be removed or Athens is going to fall apart. There are two ways to defeat the Athenian Empire. Well, two of the most feasible ways, anyway. Obvious one, destroy the fleet they have left. The second one, control the Hellespont. Either one of those things is going to end this war very quickly. So the Athenian fleet that is heading north 
is 80 ships strong and is led by a man named Thrasybulus. Now, Thrasybulus is also supported by another commander in the fleet named Thrasylus. Thrasybulus is a very well-known and well-respected man. He came to prominence during the coup in the previous episode, and when Samos decided that they would be the ones to come back and save Athens because the fleet was stationed there and they had enough firepower to do so, Thrasybulus was one of the men that were picked as a general. Since then, he's become a very popular man, but he is an aristocrat. He's one of the people that thinks Alcibiades should be brought back from exile and allowed to come back into Athens and help lead it in this war. The other man, Thrasylus, has a pretty impressive backstory to him. He was also on Samos and was elected to be a general, but he was just a hoplite. We're not dealing with somebody that had a lot of experience commanding, necessarily. He was a hoplite in the ranks and was pulled out to be made a general. This is impressive by itself. Most of the people we have discussed so far that command Athenian forces are usually aristocrats. They're usually already well known. And granted, Thrasylus was a hoplite, so he certainly wasn't hurting. He was doing fine, likely, financially. But this is still moving up in a way that we don't see very often, so it's safe to assume he's probably a pretty impressive figure. And finally, before we get into what happens with this fleet, I do want to let you know, we are introducing a lot of new characters in this episode, and so just to keep them all straight, you can go to hitmpodcast.com. I put together a guide for every single episode we have so that you can see all the characters in it and help keep them organized, as well as see maps of some of the areas we'll be discussing during this episode. So remember, hit up the website, hitmpodcast.com, for a cheat sheet if you find that that would be helpful. But now then, this Athenian fleet that is heading north to intercept the Spartan fleet and is led by Thrasybulus, supported by Thrasylus, has a problem. It does not have time to wait around. The Spartan fleet is effectively putting all of Athens under siege, and so it needs to be pried out of this area as soon as possible. Thrasybulus does not have time to wait around for maybe a good trick, or a good chance for treachery, or the perfect weather. He has to pry the Spartan fleet out of this area, or Athens is going to starve to death. So once he finds the Spartan fleet, he wastes very little time in immediately engaging it. The Athenian fleet starts sailing up into the Hellespont in a long, narrow column moving through this narrow channel of water. Mendaris, though, wants to stay near the shore. Remember, Spartans do not like to fight the Athenians at sea. The sea is the Athenian home territory. This is where the Athenians are almost unbeatable. What Mendaris would like to do is turn this into a land battle. Have the ships all go onto the beach and then fight it out on shore where his marines, which are far superior to most of the Athenians, can get the better of them. So what Mendaris does is keep his ships close to the shore in hopes of luring the Athenians onto the shore. The other thing he has in mind though is that this passage is so narrow that if someone is able to flank the other force, get around through the enemy lines and get behind them, that fleet's going to be stuck. If Athens loses its fleet here, the war is done. The war is over. So Mendaris has two things working for him right now. So as this Athenian fleet makes its way through the Hellespont, Mendaris waits. His ships are near the shore, watching the Athenians sail by. And it's right as Athens gets to the narrowest point of the Hellespont that Mendaris decides to strike. He hits the middle of the Athenian lines hard in the center, and the way that the water is shaped right now, the way this channel is shaped, 
is at the front of the Athenian forces and the back of the Athenian forces can't see each other because these lines are so long. Thrasylus is in the front of the column and Thrasybulus, the man leading the fleet, for the Athenians is in the very back of this long column. And so what he sees is he's sitting in the back. He can see the core of his navy falling apart. He can see Athenian ships breaking off from the middle of the line and running while the Peloponnesians start to chase them. This happened very, very quickly. And so what Menderes is hoping Thrasybulus is going to do, what seems to be the obvious move for Thrasybulus to do, is to bring up the rear, the supporting forces that he has, and reinforce the center. But it's a trap. If he was to do that, if he brings up the rear, it's going to be really easy for Menderes to get around him and bottle him into this narrow channel. The Athenian fleet would be stuck and the war would very likely end, and he realizes this, so instead, he starts racing out to outflank Menderes. And what he ends up doing is that as these Peloponnesian ships are chasing the Athenian ships that are starting to run, he times it so that his ships stop and turn and attack those disorganized ships. He's able to blow them to pieces. But this means that the Athenian center is still getting hammered and it's not receiving any support. It's in danger of falling apart. And this is where we can see that legendary Athenian skill at sea come into play. When you have two triremes, the best thing to do if you're trying to sink an enemy trireme is to slam that giant bronze ram you've got into the side of your enemy or maybe the rear of the ship. Punch a hole in it and put it out of commission. However, if you're on the defending side, if you see one of these 50-ton-plus ships with that giant 7-foot bronze ram heading right towards you, how do you defend against that? The Athenian steersmen show us how it's done. What they do is they wait for the Peloponnesians to come up, and as they're ch being charged by the enemy ship, they spin their whole ship around and they catch the ram with their ram. They intercept it. And so when these triremes hit nose-to-nose, I mean, it's quite a blow, but it doesn't do a lot of damage to either ship because this is what they're built for. They're built to run into stuff with this ram. So this is what the Athenians are doing. As the Peloponnesians are breaking off and attacking them, the Athenian steersmen are maneuvering these triremes to catch the blows by the rams that are coming in from all sides. It's magnificent. It's impressive. It shows the skill of the Athenians in a situation where if they lose, their empire is done and the war is over. Between the Athenian steersmen being able to hold their own and defend the Peloponnesian attack, and Thrasybulus foreseeing the trap Menderes laid for him, and instead attacking the disorganized area of the enemy, the Athenian fleet is able to keep up such pressure on the Peloponnesians that a rout begins, and they do not recover from it. The Peloponnesians run. In this battle, Athens ends up capturing 22 ships and only losing 15, so it's not a great gain, but what's more important here is what didn't happen. Thrasybulus foresaw the trap that Menderes laid and prevented the Athenian fleet from being completely destroyed and the war lost. When news of this victory gets back to Athens, they're overjoyed. There has been nothing but bad news for years now, and this is the first real victory, real meaningful victory that's happened. They think that maybe we can continue to fight this war. Maybe all hope is not lost after all. But things are not over yet. Even though they won this battle, it really doesn't matter as long as the Spartan fleet survives. If the Spartan fleet survives and is still in the Hellespont, 
Athens is still effectively under siege. What has to happen is this fleet, the Spartan fleet, has to be entirely destroyed or driven out of the area completely, or these small victories aren't really going to matter that much. And meanwhile, Athens can't have a major defeat, or they're probably done. Sparta and the other Peloponnesians, though, are doing everything they can to retain this bulldog grip on the Hellespont. More reinforcements come up to support this effort. 14 Spartan ships are making their way to Mendaris as reinforcements, compensation for the ones that were lost in the previous battle. But Athens hears about these reinforcements, and obviously you want to hit the enemy when it's weak. So the Athenian fleet goes down to intercept this smaller fleet of 14 ships. The 14 ships see them, they hide in a cove, and then on the beach. What ends up happening here is that the ships, the 14 ships, the small Peloponnesian reinforcements, will make a little bit of progress. The Athenians will hear that these ships are moving, and so they'll go to attack them and end up running them onto the shore or something. Peloponnesians will wait a couple days, and then they'll try it again. So they're doing this little leapfrog maneuver up the Hellespont towards Mendaris. When Mendaris hears about this, he takes his fleet out to come help these ships get to him, to provide support and drive off the Athenian fleet. He also sends word to his new Persian ally, the satrap Parnabas, that he needs support. Parnabas brings up his Persian army, the cavalry and everything that he is commanding, and so what happens is that all these forces start converging on a single point. When Thrasybulus and Thrasyllus meet the forces of Mendaris, they clash, and the fight takes hours. The fight goes on and on, and no one is really getting the upper hand as these two giant fleets meet, when suddenly, in the distance, 18 more ships appear. It was Alcibiades. He was back. Alcibiades has still not been back to Athens yet. He still does have a death sentence there, and so he's in no hurry to get back, but he's in good standing at Samos. So he's down at Samos, which is an Athenian naval base, and he has brought these reinforcements up. He was able to find the battle because as he was coming closer and closer to it, he started seeing debris, shattered timber, shattered bodies floating through the water by him, and he followed the trail until he found the battle. As soon as the Athenians realize that it is Alcibiades with reinforcements for them, they cheer, and the Spartans and Syracusans begin to be very worried. They turn to run. They've already been fighting for hours, and now the Athenians have fresh troops. Alcibiades takes his ships and falls onto the Syracusans, blowing them to pieces. The rest of the Spartans and the Peloponnesians are forced to fall back, and they're falling back onto the beaches so that the Persians and the cavalry, Parnabas, can come up and support them on the beach. Turn this into a land battle. Both sides are trying to get on their own home turf. Mendaris and the Peloponnesian fleet is forced to fall back and is on the beach, and it looks like this might be a total Athenian victory if they can capture these ships. When the Persians start riding up towards the beach, reinforcements have arrived. It's led by Parnabas, and he is not a standoff Persian satrap like we have seen in the past. Parnabas takes matters into his own hands. He's on his horse, but he drives his horse out into the sea, into the waves, and starts screaming out to the ships around him to hold and continue the fight. Do not fall back anymore. Because of these Persian reinforcements, Athens is forced to stop. It's not able to capture the entire fleet, but it still makes a solid dent. Athens takes 30 ships, plus other Athenian ships that were captured early on in the fighting. They're able to get them back. But the Spartan fleet, even though it's been weakened, 
does remain in the Hellespont. The problem is not over yet. This brings the year of 411 to a close. As winter sets in, what will usually happen is that not as much action takes place. Military campaigns tend to slow down, if not shut down completely. And Alcibiades, Thrasybulus, Thrasylus, they all take this opportunity to comb the area for money to try to find more support to build up their forces over the winter until spring rolls around, and then they'll have to go back out and take on the combined forces of the Spartans and the Persians again. Alcibiades is feeling pretty confident though. After all, they've just had two great victories, one of which he got to show up at the end and look like a hero. And so after collecting money from the immediate area, after a while, Alcibiades figures that he might actually have enough clout to go back to the Persian satrap that he knows, that he spent time in the court of, the first one that we mentioned, and ask for assistance from him. Because after all, he's won some battles now. Now he's a force to be reckoned with. He goes back, presents himself to the Persian satrap, and is promptly arrested. It was a terrible idea. Alcibiades is retained for about a month until he manages to steal a horse and escape and make his way back to the Greek forces again to continue the fight. Now, over the winter, both sides have managed to amass more strength. Mandaris and the Spartans have put together 80 ships, 80 triremes, and have laid siege to Sisychus. Now, Sisychus is in the middle of the Hellespont, between the modern-day Dardanelles and Gallipoli, right in what looks like a giant lake. Matter of fact, I'll have a map up of all the areas we're talking about where all these battles are taking place in the Hellespont, it's easy to get them all confused. But Sisychus is a longtime Athenian ally, and so Mandaris laying siege to this city has to be answered. Now at this point, Alcibiades is in control of this fleet after he manages to get back from Persia, and he has a plan. Alcibiades has managed to put together, him and the other Greek cities with, 86 ships. That's the size of their force. But here's the thing. He's gotten a lot of reports about the size of the force that Mandaris has. He knows it's about 80 ships. Mandaris, though, is a little bit in the dark. At least this is what Alcibiades is hoping for. Mandaris has no good way of ascertaining what the size of the Athenian fleet is. After all, they've been able to pull ships from all over the place during the winter and spring, so the numbers have fluctuated quite a bit. The plan that Alcibiades has relies on secrecy, though. He has this advantage of Mandaris likely not knowing how many ships he has, and so he wants to hold on to this. Him, the other commanders of the fleet, which by now has switched over to Theramenes, if you remember him for the previous episode, he was instrumental in the restoration of democracy after the coup. And then Thrasybulus is the other general that's still around commanding this fleet. But Alcibiades has to ensure that Mandaris has no way of knowing, one, that he's coming, and two, how many ships he's coming with. So in order to do this, he does quite a few things, some of which are kind of extreme. One, any travelers that he comes across, he arrests. He does not let them leave the area. And then eventually, as he gets closer to Sisychus and some of the islands that are right off of it, he retains shipping. He doesn't allow any of the merchant ships, no matter where they're from, to leave. He holds them all in port, and he says that anyone crossing over to the mainland of Asia, where Sisychus is, will be put to death. This plan is completely reliant on secrecy, but it seems like everything has gone according to plan. Just to try to drive the whole element of surprise home, soldiers are actually brought across this expanse at night and placed on the shore. It's during night, which is really rare for these triremes to go out in. It's a, during a big storm, but this helps the secrecy of the whole mission. And so what ends up happening here is that after everything is in place, this is how Alcibiades plays this. This is where we see him get to do what he's always wanted to do. To lead a battle. 
Now the way that this is set up is that Sisychus is on the inside of this fairly long narrow bay. And so Menderis, where he's stationed and his ships are inside, if he's sitting there, what he's gonna see as he looks out over the ocean in the Hellespont is that to the left is gonna be the mainland of Asia stretching away in the distance. And to the right, kind of at a maybe a 45, 30 degree angle on the other side is this peninsula that juts out away from the mainland. So he has a fairly narrow view out into the open waters of the Hellespont. Now, what Menderis does every morning, because remember, these are the Spartans. They don't like to go up against the Athenians unless they have to. So Menderis is ensuring that they train and they train well. There are morning exercises every day. And it's during one of these morning exercises when him and his 80 triremes are out practicing right near Sisychus when suddenly he sees 20 Athenian ships rounding the corner. He doesn't know the full size of the Athenian force, and he suspects that Athens doesn't know the full size of his fleet as well. So what he sees is 20 ships coming around the corner, presumably the Athenian fleet, coming to attack him, and as they get closer and closer, and eventually get close enough to see how many ships he has, and he actually has 80 triremes with him, they turn around and they start to run. To him, this is an easy deal, right? The Athenians were caught off guard because of poor information. The 20 ships that were coming to attack now realize they're hopelessly outnumbered and start to run. And so he takes his fleet and gives chase. 80 Spartan, Syracusan, and other allies are chasing these 20 Athenian ships, and they think this is an easy day. But this is Alcibiades doing some of his finest work. Alcibiades left, he's leading these 20 ships and he handpicked these ships. These are the fastest ships that he has. These 20 ships are just around the corner from the main Athenian fleet. There's only 20 ships with Alcibiades, but there's another 66 just around the corner. And Menderis has no idea. Alcibiades has his pretend route. The Spartan fleet gives chase with the other allies that they have. And as these 80 ships are chasing the 20 of Alcibiades, they're losing their organization. They think there's no need to worry about being defeated or even really fighting here because we outnumber them so much and so they become disorganized. Some ships are able to pull way out ahead of the rest of the fleet. Others are scattered off to the sides. And it's Esmondaris is with this fleet chasing the 20 ships of Athens. He starts looking around and he suddenly sees 60 plus ships rounding the corner and coming after him. They're organized, they're prepared, Alcibiades and his 20 ships sounds a signal and all 20 of them spin on a dime. These are triremes, they're made to fight, they're made to be fast, maneuverable. A trireme with a good crew could pull a 180 degree turn in about two lengths of the ship. That is extraordinarily quick. Alcibiades and his fast ships go from running away to doing a 180 and coming back at Menderis and just a few moments, Menderis thinks he's chasing a few stray Athenian ships, is suddenly realizing that he's walked right into a trap. He has his entire fleet turn around and run to the shore. Remember, this is Sparta and its allies fighting Athens and its allies. This is what it looks like when a lion fights a shark. The lion's going to want to get back to the shore as fast as he can, and so Menderis takes his fleet and starts heading to the beach. Alcibiades, though, and his ships are so quick, they're able to catch up with the ones on the back end of the Spartan fleet and start ripping them to pieces. The bulk of the Peloponnesian fleet, though, is able to get to the beach. Men start jumping out. The Persians' mercenaries are start coming up towards the beach to support because this looks like it's just about to turn into a land fight. But Alcibiades is not okay with this. Alcibiades and his 20 ships 
come up along the beach and start throwing grappling hooks out onto the Spartan ships, dragging them back into the ocean while the Spartans on the decks try to fight off the grappling hooks and Athenians. I know I enjoy giving Asabiades a hard time, but this is rather incredible. It's not enough though, and he's not able to drag all these Spartan ships off the beach. The Spartans are able to resist him and his grappling hooks, and so Alcibiades does something just completely insane. Remember, the rest of the fleet is still catching up with him. He's fairly isolated with only 20 ships around him. But what he does is have his men, have these ships, run up onto the beach themselves and jump out. They hit the ground, they hit the sand, ready to fight, fully armed. And as incredible as that sounds, as blockbuster worthy as that is, Mandaris saw this and probably thought, what the heck is this lunatic doing? He's attacking my left flank with 200 men, I'll slaughter him. So he turns around and starts descending on Alcibiades and his small force. Alcibiades though has worked his men into a frenzy and they are resisting with everything they have. By this point, the main body of the Athenian fleet has caught up to the beach. They can see what's going on. Thrasybulus can see Alcibiades virtually by himself with a couple hundred men around him trying to take on an increasing amount of Spartan, Peloponnesian, and Persian forces. He realizes that they're going to get slaughtered. Thrasybulus turns around to Theramenes, who's farther back behind him, and screams to Theramenes to go back and pick up the soldiers on the other beach and bring them over here, to bring up all the reinforcements to this beach. Theramenes and his ships turn around to go ferry the man across the water and bring in reinforcements. Thrasybulus though realizes that he has to take immediate action to protect Alcibiades. He beaches his own ships, but a little further away on the other side of Alcibiades and the Spartan force, so to draw some of the forces away from Alcibiades and towards him. He lands on the beach, his men get out, and they engage in the fight. But the difficulty here is that more Persian mercenaries are starting to arrive every moment. Both Alcibiades and Thersebulus are getting worn down, and it's right at this moment that Theramenes finally arrives with the reinforcements. This is what makes all the difference. This sudden injection of fresh, fired-up troops, witnessing this battle from afar and then suddenly thrown into the fray as Theramenes leads them, is what turns the tide. Mindaris himself is even killed, and as he falls, the Spartan hoplites, some of the best soldiers on land in the Greek world, turn and run. It is only the arrival of the Persian cavalry in Barnabas that withhold the Athenians from driving the Spartans back even further. The Athenians are forced to turn around, but at this point, it doesn't even matter. They have the ships on the beach and they are finishing off what few ships do remain on the water. As they turn around, actually, they see fire sprouting out of the Syracusan ships because the Syracusans would rather set fire to their own ships and let them burn than allow the Athenians to use them. This is a stunning victory. This is the greatest victory that has taken place since the Peloponnesian War began. The entire fleet of the Spartans and Peloponnesians and Syracusans is destroyed completely or captured. Every ship is gone. Athens set up two trophies for its victory. One for its victory at sea, another for its victory on land. The next day, it walked into Sisychus and captured the city. The Spartan garrison there had just left. After taking the city, they intercepted a note that was being sent back to Sparta from the Spartans that were left. The note, in its classic Spartan brevity, describes this disaster in a mere four sentences. It says this, quote, The ships are gone, 
Menderis is dead. The men are starving. We know not what to do. Alcibiades stayed in the area for 20 days to collect money from this victory. He set up a fort on the Hellespont and used it as a customs house to collect fees from any of the merchants that would go through the area. They had just won a great victory and now it was time to capitalize on it. Because although they had taken the Hellespont by now, many of the other port towns still didn't belong to them. They had the water itself, but they didn't have the land immediately around the water. They spend a year or two in this area going around laying sieges to towns, attacking different enemies. There is just battle after battle after battle that we don't need to get into. But this is really where Alcibiades shines. There are a lot of sieges, there is a lot of confrontation, but Alcibiades is managing to take some of these cities by treachery or tricks. One of the best examples of this is Byzantium. Byzantium is a large walled city. To lay siege to this place or to attack it is going to be expensive and cost lives and money. Alcibiades takes it by treachery. Now, things in this area aren't a total success. If you're looking to critique the Athenians from a historical perspective, this is one of the things you can say about them, is that they don't capitalize on this victory as much as they could have. A lot of the Ionian cities around the west coast of Asia Minor are still able to resist Athenian power and stay outside of the Athenian Empire. But the Athenian generals, though, they do a good enough job that eventually Parnabas, the Persians in this area, have to ask for a peace. They set up a kind of an odd treaty where they pay tribute to Athens, but Athens can't come into the area. Persia still runs it, some areas of it. It's kind of a strange treaty. But Persia has to come to the table, and here's the real kicker. Even though Persia has to make this deal with Athens, the big deal here, what really validates Alcibiades, is that Parnabas insists that Alcibiades sign this treaty, or he won't consider it valid at all. It's Alcibiades that is the one that makes peace with the Persian satrap in the area. He's the one that makes this treaty real. And now that the Hellespont is finally secured, Athens can leave. Most of these generals, as you might expect, go back to either Athens or Samos. Theramenes leaves the Hellespont and is able to bring back a few territories that have frayed off from the Athenian Empire before heading back. Thrasybulus cleans up the coast of Thrace before also going back. But what might be surprising here is that Alcibiades does not return to Athens. Instead, he goes back to Samos. Even after these victories, Alcibiades is still technically an outlaw. He was accused of profaning religious mysteries, and then defected to Sparta, and then defected to Persia. There are a lot of reasons that people could kill him and be well within their rights. So he sends out feelers. He sends messengers back to Athens to try to get a feel of what the people are thinking about him and see how they think these recent victories weigh up against his past crimes. These victories are incredible, and he had a hand in at least a couple of them. But if he returns, and as it turns out, these victories aren't quite enough, and the people are still angry, he's a dead man. It's been three years now that Alcibiades has been fighting for Athens, but it's been about eight years since he's been back to Athens. He hasn't seen anyone there in a long time, but he eventually decides that it's time to return. He thinks he has a chance at coming back to Athens and being accepted. So after almost eight long years away, Alcibiades and his trireme pull back into the port of Athens. But he doesn't even get off. He stays on his ship and watches the port. He sees people coming out, but he does not know if it's an angry crowd coming to kill him or if it's a welcoming committee. 
He stays on his ship until he sees people that he knows, people that he is related to, his cousin, his friends are in the crowd. And then he hears the cheering, the cheering for him. Alcibiades, the hero of Sisychus and Byzantium and the Hellespont, steps off of the ship and the people fawn over him. They place wreaths on his head as he walks through the crowd if they can reach him. In the distance, he can see old men grabbing younger men, kids, and pointing to him, telling the young men who Alcibiades is and what he's done. He is guided back to the assembly and this celebrating throng of people adoring over him, and there he addresses the people of Athens. He tells them that he is sorry for these crimes that happened so long ago, and that it's not anyone's fault. He doesn't try to blame it on his enemies or the people in general, but he says it was just bad luck. And instead he talks about the bright future of Athens, of what he will be able to do in Athens. It's a rare show of a little-tempered humility by Alcibiades while the people are fawning over him. They celebrate his return. They take the stone that carries the inscription of his crimes and the conviction of Alcibiades. They rip it out of the ground and throw it into the sea. He ends up leading a religious formal procession soon after this. And some people do point out that it was Thrasybulus and some of the other generals that actually did a lot of the heavy lifting of these battles. But it didn't matter. No matter. If you considered Alcibiades a self-obsessed charlatan that had just gotten lucky, or the greatest man Athens had ever produced, one thing was certain. Alcibiades was back. Thank you very much for listening to this action-packed episode of History in the Making. Join us next time as we meet some of the legendary characters of the Peloponnesian War. We meet a man named Lysander. Cyrus, the son of the great king of Persia, comes in to take a personal hand in this Greek war. And we will see Alcibiades fulfill his dream of becoming the first leading man in Athens. Now, as always, thank you very much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are, remember, leave a review on iTunes. It costs you nothing. It really helps out the show a lot and gets the word out. Or if you'd really like to support the show, you can always come to Patreon. Just a buck a show gives you access to the cutting room floor feed where we go more into each episode and talk a little bit about the things that were left out of each show. And thank you very much to the people that have already signed up for Patreon. It's not only very gratifying, but it also really helps pay the bills. So I appreciate it. As always, you can go to hitmpodcast.com to see links for all these things in addition to the show notes. We talk about quite a few different battles and introduce quite a few new people, and so you can see cheat sheets for all of them And in addition to where some of these battles took place. And finally, yes, I know the website looks a little weird right now. I'm currently working on it. As always, though, thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Siri, Google Battle of Salamis. Let's see. Here's what I found on the web for Battle of Salamis. Delicious.